Acts 17, 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, May we know what this teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through your city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed He is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead... Some scoffed, but others said, We will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Father God, we thank you again for Danielle and for all that she's brought to us this week. Thank you for her time in preparation, for her compassion in delivery. And this morning we ask you for a fresh outpouring on her as she gives us this last teaching. 
Renew her, strengthen her, and speak to us through her. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Good morning. God is good. Absolutely. Even in the mornings. Fantastic. Uh, Yesterday, I meant to um, mention a few things, and I forgot, so I wanted to just uh, catch you up and mention those today. Uh, One of the questions that I wanted us um, to ask ourselves are, where are the unclean places in in our own neighborhoods, in our own um, situations, and in our own contexts? And so at the talkback, it was a bit of a, a shorter talkback, um, but at the talk back, we talked a little bit about where those unclean places are in our own lives and in the context of Christianity today. And I, I shared there briefly about a guy named Andrew Marin, who I've met recently, um, who had this crisis of belief. He was raised, you know, evangelical, what he would call a homophobic uh, Christian male. And uh, within the space of a few weeks, actually, uh, the space of a month, three of his friends, close friends, came out to him that they, they had been struggling with um, being gay. And he was just riveted and shocked and didn't really know what to do and had, was sort of fluctuating between, you know, sort of, ah, <laughs> and uh, running away, and, but yet still loving them as friends and not really knowing what to do. And so his process and his journey uh, sort of developed from there, and he really started to develop some work Uh, around what it means to minister with and among gay people. And so he actually ended up starting an incarnational community in Boys Town in Chicago. I just actually met with him about um, a month ago now in Chicago in Boys Town and saw his work and and he shared with me a little bit of his story, the strategy of how he he moved in with his wife uh, into Boys Town and actually you know, took on Jesus' strategy of living among and sharing with and being present in and journeying with people. And the journey has included some incredible stories of transformation and also some incredible um, strategies around um, unclean places, you know, and journeying there in all the uncomfortableness that that holds. Uh, He's really lived within the tension well. So he's just produced a book called Love is an Orientation, uh, elevating the conversation with the gay community. Uh, and in the talkback session, we even offered, remember we were talking about creating safe places. And one of the things he does that's just incredible is in the community of Boys Town, uh, which he's been living in for some time now. So he's gained some credibility uh, as a man who really loves people. Uh, and he's created a thing called Living in the Tension Nights, where they actually talk about issues around the community um, and from a Christian perspective, and they live together within this, this tension, and they're trying to walk it out. So uh, it's a helpful question to ask, I think, and I wanted to just mention that I think homosexuality is probably one of those unclean places that's really uncomfortable for most Christians and most churches and most organizations. And so um, figuring out what God's saying to the church and how to walk that out you know, without sort of going completely throw out orthodoxy and embrace uh, liberalism and also you know, leaving sort of places of prejudice uh, is essential for going forward. So if that's at all helpful. Okay, the the scripture today is one of the most exciting. Uh, Paul, of course, I love. He's fantastic um, and love his work and his ministry. And Paul's launched um, in the New Testament now. We've skipped sort of some of that story, but all of us know Saul to Paul. We know his transformation, getting knocked off his horse by a blinding light and all that jazz. 
And, uh, and he's an evangelist. He's actually, he calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles. So, uh, and he has this sort of strategy. Paul's a very organized man, and he's got this sort of strategy of how he's going to reach the empire for Christ and how he's going to do that. And he goes specifically, really directively to these specific places. What's interesting about this story, of course, is that the, the last three towns Paul's been in, he's been kicked out of, you know, which is what I like about him, I think. Partly. And he's been kicked out of there. He's been, and there's been a lot of persecution on the church as a result of him stirring up trouble in all of those places. Uh, and so his friends actually say to him, just prior to this passage, they say to him, look, Paul, could you just go away? Um, and we'll meet you later. <laughs> like, and they're, they're basically saying, if you stay here, it's gonna, the heat's on and we're, we're just gonna, it's going to be bad. So if you just went away for a little while, and I tell you what, why don't you just wait in Athens? It's a, you know, a major port city. We'll meet there later and we'll get on with the strategy. So the scripture today begins with this idea, while Paul was waiting, which I think is really important for us to get. I know it's just the first three words we're going to move on, trust me. But uh, while Paul was waiting, I think is absolutely fantastic. And this guy named Bill Wilson, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he started a Sunday school in the Bronx in New York City. It's, the Sunday school now is about 22,000 kids. Uh, and he started it. He was one of those abandoned kids. His mom literally took him to this corner of the city and said, I'll be right back, and never ever came back when he was a young boy. And he saw, you know, this massive sea of all these children who were really uncared for and definitely... Uh, not aware of the gospel, and he started a Sunday school, and he has a chapter in his book called, I think the book's called Whose Child Is This, and he has, a, he has a chapter called What to Do While You're Waiting for the Burning Bush. It's a fantastic idea, I think, because most of us are, are planners. Most of us are actually strategic. Most of us actually are looking for the proper occasion for God to move, you know, we don't really realize that actually every occasion, every ordinariness, every part of our life, every time where we're waiting is actually when God often does some of his most amazing work. And so Paul's just waiting around. He's one of the more directed Christians I know. And while he's waiting, this opportunity presents itself. And I wanted to say the same thing as Bill Wilson, really. There are things you can do while you're waiting for the spectacular moments of God to show up. There are things that you can do while you're waiting in between. I went to a church one time and, um, to speak, and in their bulletin I read that mission had been suspended. <laughs> Because the committee was without a leader until somebody volunteered. They just had suspended their mission operations. It's pretty funny. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't quite know. Yeah, I didn't know why they were bothering to meet. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it's a fantastic time to speak. Anyway, <laughs> I never went back. <laughs> We've always got to be ready. I remember a time I was visiting the Ukraine years after... Um, I had been there for the first time as a young person I told you about last night. And so I went back years later, and we went. I was doing a bit of training and teaching in some various places around the Ukraine. My husband had to, to leave early, so he left on an earlier flight. And I was um, there for the next day, and I was catching a flight. I had to change the flight arrangements in the middle of my time there, which you never really should do, by the way, just as an aside. <laughs> when you're in Ukraine, you shouldn't change your flight. So anyway, I... That they had sent a driver, I was with the Salvation Army, and they had sent me to the airport with a driver and said, you know, take them in with you and make sure everything's sorted. But I was like way too cool for that. So I said, ah, oh, you know, don't be silly. You go ahead, just drop me off, I'll be fine. 
And I had given um, all the rest of my cash to the Salvation Army for some incredible work they were doing there. I just sort of offloaded it all. And I found myself at the Ukraine airport in Kiev. And I went in to register for my flight. And they informed me that no such flight existed. <laughs> and um, I was shocked, you know, because I actually had a paper and everything, you know. Like, <laughs> and I had a flight number and a seat assigned to me. I was like, how can you give me a seat on a flight that doesn't exist? Uh, and they said, welcome to the Ukraine, right? <laughs> and uh, so basically, there was no flight. As a matter of fact, I couldn't catch a flight out of there for about two more days. And um, so I was there at the airport, of course, well prepared as always. I had nobody's phone number, nobody's name, didn't speak Ukrainian, and had no money. <laughs> so I'm at the Ukraine airport, and you know, you do one of those, you're mad at yourself for not planning this better. You're mad because you didn't take the advice of the people that dropped you off. You, you know, you're sort of upset in all sorts of ways. If you're female, you understand you want to cry and shout at the same time, you know. It's pretty much what marriage feels like most of the time, right? <laughs> and so I just did one of those quick, you know, like God help me out kind of things and sat down and I pulled a few things out of my bag and I was just looking, scrounging around for any money I might possibly have. And in my Bible, of all places, I found an American $5 bill. Shocking. Because uh, I'm not American. <laughs> so it was a bit weird. <laughs> but anyway, I found this $5 bill and I went to cash it in and got about 200,000 Ukrainian dollars. <laughs> Actually, I got just enough money to buy a bus ticket to the center of city. So I decided this is what I'll do. I'll buy this bus ticket to the very center of town because I've got a couple days now. <laughs> and I'll just look around to see if I can find the Salvation Army. You know? <laughs> it's not a bad plan. So I get on the bus and I'm all upset, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm halfway between crying and shouting and I'm mad at myself and I've got no way to contact anybody and I'm just sort of all upset and I get on this bus, the guy loads my thing and the Ukrainian driver lets me on, he sits me down next to this other guy and this other guy looks at me and he goes, you speak English? <laughs> I said, yes I do. Colorful English right now actually is what I prefer. <laughs> Certainly not the queen's own at this moment. <laughs> And, and the next thing he asked me was, do you know God? <laughs> and it turned out he was from one of the republics, you know, that in, it was more of a Muslim republic. And he had heard of this Jesus guy, but no one had ever really explained it to him. So he said, I wonder if you could take the time, <laughs> you know. So at the end of the guy did, I took the time. Uh, very kind of me, I know. And... <laughs> And at the end, I remember I was getting off. I said to the bus driver, just drop me off at the center of town. I'm looking for the Salvation Army, you know. And he said, yeah, okay. <laughs> Wacko. And uh, this guy at the end of the conversation, the bus driver called me. He said, I, you know, come this way. This is where you want to get off. I said, okay, I've got to go. But I said, I'd really, really like it if you got saved. <laughs> and the guy's like, what? I'm like, because it's cost me a lot of effort to be here right now. <laughs> couple days worth of time and a ticket that doesn't exist. I mean, God made a flight disappear. Don't you think you should listen? <laughs> like, buddy, how much will it take, you know? <laughs> Pay some attention. It's, it's in the moments where you don't expect it, isn't it? It's on your way. It's in the disruption. It's when your plans have changed. And Paul finds himself in that exact same situation. His plans have changed. As a matter of fact, I think out of you know, all the apostles, Paul was probably the most frustrated that these three towns he just got kicked out of it. His friends finally said, look, just go wait somewhere else. You're driving us nuts. And Paul's thinking his plans are thwarted, aren't he? He's thinking this plan that he has for mission, you know, is now suspended. <laughs> 
And we don't really realize, and we don't realize God's incredible ability to work his purposes out in our lives all the time. And I think if there is a word in the first three words of this passage of scripture, it is to be expectant and to be ready and to be watching for what God's doing all the time. To not worry about your own agenda all the time. To still be purposeful, absolutely, but it's while we're waiting for those spectacular moments. So if you're someone here and you're just like, if only I could get a job in the ministry, that would be the time. Or if only I could do this. Or if only my church would say, here, you lead this. Or if only this would happen, then that would be the time. If only I had a Moses encounter with the burning bush. Well, while you're waiting for that, please expect God to move. He's moving all the time, calling everyday ordinary people in all sorts of circumstances while they're waiting for the spectacular. He's doing kingdom business, and we really ought to be ready. The other thing that happens right away in the scripture is that Paul goes from while he's waiting to looking around Athens, and as he looks around Athens, which is, we understand to be the philosophical home, really, Athens, of, uh, of Western philosophy, really. And uh, while he's looking around it, he sees around him just this incredible idol worship. And, uh, and he, he sees it, and the scripture uses this term. It's an interesting term. It says he's deeply grieved or deeply moved, some scripture says. It means that his heart is really breaking for the people of Athens. And it's an interesting term to use because, of course, when we're, when we're talking about unclean places... And when Peter even, he, what he's surprised, what Peter is surprised at even yesterday when he went to Cornelius' house is he was surprised that Cornelius was a good man. He was actually surprised when he came into contact with Cornelius, when he got to know him and went into his home, he realized he was a God-fearing man. He realized that there was a Gentile who was good. And it surprised him, even as he went into those unclean uh, areas, it surprised him at his heart towards the Gentiles. And you can see, even in the theory that we talked about, when they're arguing passionately for the Gentiles to be able to be saved without becoming Jewish, they're arguing passionately because they actually feel for their brothers who are Gentiles. They've become friends now. And there's a revelation that needs to happen with us when it comes to mission and when it comes to doing mission, and we're going to camp out on some evangelism techniques in a bit, when it comes to doing evangelism, there's a revelation we really need to understand, and that's Jesus is a friend of sinners. He's an absolute friend of sinners. And when Paul moves into Athens, he's not disgusted by the idols. He's deeply grieved by them. He looks around at the search in people, and he sees the emptiness and the meaninglessness of what they're pursuing. He sees even probably the damaging effects, and some of the descriptions of Athens worship are pretty scary stuff, you know, in terms of uh, temple prostitution and all sorts of things like that. And he looks around, and he's deeply grieved inside of himself. He actually feels. You know, Frederick Nietzsche, when he was a kid, he, he's the guy that said God is dead. You know, he termed that phrase. Once I was in a bathroom stall at a, in a public place, and it had on it, God is dead, Nietzsche, and someone else had come and written, Nietzsche's dead, God, you know. <laughs> but Nietzsche was raised the son of a, of a pastor, of a Lutheran pastor. And it's, it's said that when Nietzsche was a teenager, he stood at the back of his dad's church and he looked up at, at his dad and he said, does that thing up there ever feel? And what Nietzsche understood of Christianity and religion was sort of this academic, theological, principled religion. He didn't, he didn't have a father who loved him and he didn't have a father who felt for him. And actually Christianity, in many cases, even evangelism, we've robbed ourselves of feeling, haven't we? 
even in mercy, we do, and we do duty well. I'm a good duty person. I do what I'm supposed to do. I do what I read the scriptures tell me to do. When I, when I first um, moved to this neighborhood I was telling you about, the downtown east side, I, a friend of mine came. She's a really gifted prayer. She's a feeler, you know, those people. You need a few of those around. And she was uh, walking around. We were on a prayer walk, I remember, and we were walking through this alley, and, um, and we're walking down this alley, and all of a sudden I realized I'm actually by myself now. I turn around. I've lost my intercessor friend. I'm like, what? how do you lose an intercessor in an alley? <laughs> And I look around and I realize actually she stopped because one of the first uh, girls we passed was a girl who had just used, she's sort of half-dressed, lying against the wall of this alley. Really, it was actually quite sad. But I, of course, had just, I was prayer walking. We were on a prayer walk and I knew we had about 40 minutes to finish the prayer walk and there's 8,000 more injecting drug users in that neighborhood. So I was like, yeah, God bless her. Let's move on, you know. <laughs> but my intercessor friend had actually stopped and was actually kneeling at this girl's feet and weeping. Now, I remember a conversation going in my mind, going, are we going to do that every time? <laughs> and I remember having this conversation, is this really going to do anything? Like, it's nice of you to weep, but shouldn't we really move on and create a drop-in center where she can go off the street and create some sort of safety for her? I mean, I'm just in do mode, right? I'm just like, you know, and then I literally, I remember going, okay, five minutes for, per addict? You know, like, how long do we weep for? I mean, I just, you know, a bit of a woohoo. And, and uh, a couple uh, weeks later, I was doing a youth thing. We were talking about justice issues, and there was a video that came on the screen, and it was, you know, just all these injustices around the world shown. It was really quite a shocking video, and it was just boom, 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 boom. And then after the video... The MC of the meeting at the time, no one really knew what to do, you know, which is, do you ever get into meetings where nobody knows what to do? Everybody kind of panics in a Christian setting. We're like, ah, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And no one knew what to do. And so it was just sort of a panic setting. And no, you know, nobody moved except one guy that worked with us. I was like, why do all the freaks work with me? But anyway, <laughs> one guy that works with us, he was, he was in the crowd and he just started to weep. You know, he just started to wail and weep. And I remember going, oh, uncomfortable, uncomfortable. And the Lord strongly rebuked me. And he said, actually, Danielle, that's the right response. That's the right thing to do. And he had me go to a story in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 8 and 9, there's this beautiful story. It's, it's actually a shocking story of Ezekiel, one of his visions. And actually, in this vision, God takes him by the head of his hair <laughs> and lifts him up to various places in the city. And I always just sort of say, you know, if, if God lifts you by the head of your hair, you might want to pay some attention. <laughs> he just grabs him by the head of his hair, Ezekiel 8, and he takes him to the city, shows him all the sins of Israel, shows him all the places, the hidden places that nobody else sees. And he, see, he shows him all the injustices. And he asks this question in that passage of Scripture, who will grieve for the sins of my people, who will grieve for the sins of my people. And then he pronounces this judgment, and these four angels come, and before the four angels come to kind of just slay the wicked, that's what's happening, judgment's coming, he sends in this angel first with an ink pad, and the angel's directed, it's in, in, in Ezekiel chapter 9, he says this in, in verse 4, the angel's directed with the ink pad to put a mark or a seal on the forehead of anyone, and check this out, of anyone who will grieve for the sins of God's people. Now, I was like, 
it? All that's required for a mark from the Lord is being willing to grieve for the sins of his people. Like all these crying people are going to get marked. What a, shouldn't they do something about the sin? Shouldn't it be people who will rebuke the sin? Shouldn't it be people who will, you know, stop the sin? Shouldn't it be people? And God was actually saying to me, no, Danielle, what I actually need is a motivator. What I need before we do anything at all in the name of love with no love. What we need to do actually is we need to feel a bit. We need to grieve a bit. Our hearts need to be moved within us a little while. <laughs> and from that spot of grief, I remember reading actually the scheme uh, the Salvation Army did way in its inception about prostitution and actually human trafficking. Gr girls were being sold into a prostitution ring and the Salvation Army set up this, with W.T. Stead, set up this sting operation. And the whole reason why the Salvation Army did it actually, Bramwell Booth, the son of William Booth, he did it because his wife used to cry herself to sleep every night and he was so sick of it, he decided to do something about it. He really, his, his wife used to cry herself to sleep, and Bramwell would say, honey, what can I do to help? And she'd say, we have to help the girls. We have to help the girls. We have to help the girls. It doesn't work with our balanced theology, does it? But there's something about grief. There's something about feeling. There's something about being engaged. There's something about grieving. And this beautiful image of Paul the Apostle, who is you know, comes from this religious, hard background, this beautiful image of him going to Athens by accident and finding an occasion to take God to the center place of Western philosophy and then feeling deeply grieved for the people there. Jesus is a friend of sinners. He's for them, not against them. If anything, Jesus, even over Jerusalem, do you remember that? Jesus embracing, crying, weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Would that you have recognized who I was. Would that you could have. Like a mother hen, I longed for you to bring you under my wings. You know, if anyone could have been condemning, if anyone could have been judgmental, it would have been Jesus. If anyone could have stood up and said, you know, this town's had it. <laughs> If anyone could have shaken the dust off his feet, but Jesus instead embracing the grief of lost people, right? Weeping himself, feeling deeply troubled over the rejection of Jerusalem of the Savior of God. And I wonder how often we choose to feel. It's a really hard thing to do, isn't it? To embrace. So I, I, I went to this conference shortly after this revelation and God told me to call people to weep, you know, which... This is just absolutely terrifying for me because I'm not a weeper. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not, it's not my inclination as I've suggested. I think, you know, five minutes is good, right? Let's move on. And God called, so I remember being on the platform and saying, God's calling us to weep. And then I'm like trying to poke myself in the eye, you know, <laughs> just, just pinching myself, you know, make me cry, make me cry. <laughs> And I, so it, I couldn't cry. I, it was way too scripted, and many people did. And actually, many feelers, um, through that revelation and teaching, many feelers, people who are naturally inclined to feel, and the church has said, look, would you just shut up? This is embarrassing. Would you stop it? Hold it in. Keep it together. You know, put a lid on it. I, I think many feelers need to be released in the church. We need you. There needs to be a recognition. And many of my intercessor friends that I used to sort of mock, and still do, actually, openly, as you know, 
I've, I've many times apologized for and recognized their great gift among us that we need to feel. We need to feel God's heart. That needs to actually be part of what we do and how we respond. A mission can never be done in a vacuum of just academic duty. We need to feel deeply grieved over the condition of people in the world. We are their friends. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And those people were released. But those of us who weren't criers, who weren't naturally soft-hearted, and we needed really some help. We gave God permission at this conference. I remember we said, God, we're going to give you permission to break our hearts. You know, we're going to give you permission. Whenever you want to do this, you break our hearts. And unfortunately, a couple weeks later, I was at this um, business meeting <laughs> with a bunch of other Salvation Army officers. And um, it's, Salvation Army gatherings uh, are a bit like um, Happy Feet conventions, Really, we're all in black and white, and it's just minus the dancing, you know, there's no, it's a bit, it always reminds me of that. I always feel like sort of doing a little, (laughs) anyway, we're there, and it's all very, you know, formal and, and proper, and they ended with this song, which is an old Salvation Army song. It was actually one of the most boring meetings I've ever been in my whole life. And uh, I was sitting near the front, and um, in all the executive teams there, and what happens in executive teams, and I don't know if you're like this at all, whenever you do mission that's risky, everybody thinks you've, you know, you're out of balance, and we need to be really careful about your mental health, and like all that kind of stuff, right? And I'm sitting there, and the, the, the last song is, you know, to go to the dying, to go to the lost, to go to, the, it's this whole like sort of Salvation Army call thing. And it's, they're just singing it as a benediction. I mean, they're not even into it. It's no Amazing Grace last night. It's just, you know, to care for the dying, to love the lost. And everyone's just like, when's this meeting over? And all of a sudden, I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just like, to care for the dying. I'm just like, and I'm like, not now, God. <laughs> not now, not here. You know, I can see the executive leadership team gathering together. Yes, she's been going too hard. We need to, you know, like, I told her that neighborhood was no good. You know what? It's just, not now, God, not now. And God actually, I just started giving him permission to break in. I said, okay, now, so be it. (laughs) So be it. I'll be a fool. I'll grieve over the sins of Israel. I'll be one that's moved my heart, grieved with the things that grieve the heart of God. I'll be a friend of sinners. I'll do it. I know it's painful and really weak. I know it's probably not the strategy I would prefer, but I'll embrace it. Uh, Please don't pick me up by the head of my hair. (laughs) I'll do it willingly. Yeah. So before, and then we're going to go into these evangelism strategies, and I I just wanted to suggest that we could be expectant, number one, while we're waiting for something spectacular to happen. God's always on the move. He's always working things out. He's always got opportunities and things for us to do. And, And second of all, we need to have our motive, right? Our hearts need to be engaged for the lost, they really do. And if your heart isn't naturally engaged for the lost, take heart. Mine wasn't either. It, you can actually ask God to engage your heart. He will do that. He is alive in every conceivable way. He's not just alive because he rose from the dead. He's alive in every conceivable way. He's alive emotionally. His heart is fully awake all of the time. And you see that. That actually became clear to me in Scripture. If you read about Jesus, he's laughing, he's crying, he's angry, he's, I mean, he is fully alive, isn't he? And his call to us is to engage that as well. He's a friend of sinners. 
The other quick thing we said yesterday was impact comes through contact. And this is really, really key. All through the Acts of the Apostles, the learning curve of the church is that impact, true impact comes through contact. You cannot impact people if you're not among them. It's impossible. So um, that, that principle is always happening. And Paul is impacted by the sin of Athens because he's in Athens. And not only is he in the synagogue with the religious people fighting it out with them because he loves to get that stirred up first, but he's also in the marketplace and he's with the everyday Athenian and he's, he's engaged with them in conversation. He's with the philosophers. He's wandering around to the various temples and he's engaged because he's there. And this is really absolutely key. We cannot do mission from a boardroom. You cannot do mission from a principal. You cannot do mission from afar. You have to go. You have to be among. You have to be part of community. You have to touch and rub shoulders with sinners if you're going to have a heart for sinners. You're going to have to figure that one out. Impact comes through contact. This is key over and over again in Acts in the Apostles. So we're going to talk about four evangelism strategies just really quickly this morning. One is, um, oh, I, I added one. One is presence and friendship. And I, I've added this um, to the reason and presentation because they go together, I think. Um, somebody once said, silence is golden, and sometimes it's just plain yellow, you know. That actually, uh, and I, I think Philip alluded to that on the night that he spoke here, where he said, you know, demonstration and proclamation go together. And somehow, in, in our culture, we've become a bit ashamed of the gospel of Christ. We've, we've become a little bit ashamed of it. I used to play basketball in a women's league in my first town where I was the minister um, there. And I played basketball in this women's league really just to make some friends with some sinners, which that's always usually a good place to go. And, uh, and, and I was hanging out with these women for years, actually, for, for many years, and I kept saying to God, you know, like, this whole friendship evangelism is really a pain, you know. It's just taking forever, you know, <laughs> like, this whole, is it ever going to go anywhere? And actually, they'd go to the bar afterwards, and I would go to the bar with them, which is really always a hard thing to do when you're a salvationist. Right, because you don't really drink, so then that's weird. And then you're already, you know, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, we go to the bar, feeling unclean, feeling weird, and actually feeling like this is going nowhere. But while I was on that team, I made friends with one woman who was a councilwoman in the city um, hall. And she was actually quite a lovely woman. And I asked her if she would help us raise some money for the Salvation Army. You know, that's what we do. And um, so I asked her if she would help us run this appeal, the Red Shield appeal for the year for our town. And she said, oh, absolutely. I love helping poor people. You know, that's like my gig. I said, fantastic. Plus, it would really help her campaign for mayor, right? <laughs> I said, great. And uh, so she came to meet me, and we had this conversation about what it would entail and what it would be about, what we would need for her. And in that conversation, she said to me, just so you know from the outset, I don't want you to get any wrong ideas. I think Christianity is for the weak. To which I replied, oh, thank God, you get it. <laughs> she said, what do you mean? I said, well, so many people don't understand that Christianity is absolutely for the weak. I mean, Scripture says that, you know, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. I mean, Jesus came to give good news to the poor. It wasn't, you know, it, you have to be weak, actually, to need a Savior. And thanks for getting it, you know. I'm actually one of the weakest of them. <laughs> And I remember she left and wrote me this furious email that night. I didn't mean to call you weak. <laughs> I don't think you're weak. <laughs> I played basketball with you. You don't seem weak. <laughs> you know, just... 
and just did this whole furious sort of apologetic, I'm really, really sorry. I wrote back to her saying, no, absolutely, you are absolutely correct. Christianity's for the weak, the humble in heart, those who need, recognize their need of a savior. They're, it's a prerequisite for getting saved, <laughs> to know your need of savior. And we had this ongoing conversation. She was absolutely intrigued. You know, she was an Oprah fan. You know, she used to keep a gratitude journal. And I used to always say to her, what, who are you grateful to? <laughs> and she'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> just, I'm just grateful. Fantastic. We had this ongoing conversation, and deeper and deeper and deeper it went. You know, she asked me for more scripture. And then we, we put on this business association sort of evangelism, apologetic time, and invited her to come. And I remember about a couple months into this Red Shield appeal, she asked to meet me at this coffee shop. And when I got to the coffee shop, she was sitting there, and she just looked up at me, and she said, I'm so weak. <laughs> and actually, when she was honest enough, to f honest enough with me and honest enough in her own life, she realized, actually, that she was really quite desperate and weak inside, and that she had created this facade of self-sufficiency and business, and, you know, her dad was a high-powered lawyer, and there was all this stuff going on, but really at the core of who she was, she was unsatisfied, deeply weak and insecure, and she prayed for a savior that day, and, you know, it was really beautiful about her. She's the mayor now, by the way. <laughs> Praise the Lord, and, uh, and what was really beautiful about this particular woman is that she embraced a posture of uh, meekness, really, as a lifestyle. She came and served in our soup line and would serve the homeless and bring students from her program. And she really embraced, I mean, when it came to the gospel, she understood it. It wasn't just an academic ascent. It was a real heart movement. But the trick to that, the, the point of that is that presence is key, isn't it? Presence and friendship is a great way um, to share our faith and maybe one of the essential ways to share our faith. But presence and friendship isn't enough. I, I could play basketball to the end of time with those women and nothing really could come of it if I wasn't willing to proclaim my faith, if I wasn't able to give a reason for what I believed, if I wasn't able to bring proclamation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Another girl in that, from that same basketball team, this was right after I said to God, that's it, I'm done, unless something happens here. And a, a couple of these women started actually engaging in conversation. And I started to do some running training with one of them, and we went for a run together. And uh, we're asking each other a little bit about who we are and stuff like that. Now, she happened to have a mother who was a really strong Christian in the town. And she belonged to a church, a Mennonite Brethren Church I used to speak at quite a bit. And so when her daughter came home and told her mother that she was running with Danielle from the Salvation Army, her mother broke out into tongues, you know, and started dancing around, <laughs> which wasn't that helpful, really, because the next run we had, my friend Nikki was like, who are you? <laughs> And what are you doing here? And she asked me this incredible question, actually, while we were running. She said, am I a project to you? That's well, not a bad question, is it? And of course, I said immediately, oh, no, no, no. But then I was like, I don't know. Is she a project to me? And actually, again, this motive, right? This motive thing coming into play, God convicting my heart, saying, "Why is she a project to you? Is, is this just sort of like a goal? Is evangelism just a trophy? Are you expecting a, a knife set when you get to heaven? You know, are you, is this what, what's happening? And then the next time we ran, she said to me, look, I don't mind training with you. I don't mind this running thing because I'm really enjoying it, but I don't want you to bring up Jesus. I said to her, well, then we can't run. She said, what? 
<laughs> That's not what I was expecting. I said, I can't, I'm sorry, but my whole life actually is wrapped around Jesus, and he's in it, and I'm in it, and he's out of it. I don't even know where he starts, and I begin. I don't know where I start, and he begins. I don't know how to, it, you know, I can't deny who Jesus is my whole life. So what you're asking me to do is just run with you in silence. <laughs> And I'm like, if you're my friend, I'm your friend. You accept me for who I am. I accept you for who you are. Let's call that a day. That's not very fair. You want me to accept who you are, but you're not willing to accept who I am? And then by the end of it, she was like, okay, okay, tell me about Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not that you have to bury Jesus in you. First, it's the motive, isn't it? It's your motive in sharing Jesus. And it's also some transparency and authenticity. And it's also some courage about what you believe. It's also saying, actually, there's some places I can't draw the line. I'm sorry if Jesus offends you, but he's a big part of my life. It's just some places I'm not willing to leave him behind so that we can be friends. Actually, he comes with me. And hopefully that's going to be a a really fun and enriching experience for us. But this is who I am. I can't change who I am. And and this is essential to be be motivated by love, to be grieved for the sins of, of people. And to love people. They're not projects. People are not projects. But to be unashamed about the gospel and to be able to present with a reasonable explanation. This reason and presentation, I think, in our, um, in our culture today is really difficult because there is a, a real sense in which Christians and outspoken Christians are really frowned upon. Uh, and so there's a real sense in which we feel like, oh, you know, if I bring up Jesus, I'm going to be a freak. And actually, I think I think if we bring up Jesus, we will be freaks, and we will be considered weak, and we will maybe sometimes be despised, but we bring up Jesus, don't we? We bring up Jesus because Jesus is in us to bring up. We bring up Jesus because we're deeply grieved for people to come into meaning and purpose in their lives because we love people. We bring up Jesus because that's what we have. That's who we have that can actually answer the concerns and the problems of the world. So I think there needs to be a boldness, a resurrection of evangelism, of proclamation, Uh, presence and friendship, of course, being there, impact comes through contact, reason and presentation, um, finding our voice. Here's a little clip of um, Avon doing evangelism. Uh, it's, It's fantastic, actually, that the whole movie, really, of the other and the unclean places and going. I think it's actually sad that Avon has uh, more guts than the Christian church on occasion. Um, but true, isn't it? Have you ever met an Avon lady? <laughs> Absolutely convinced of their product. I don't necessarily think that that presence thing is easy to do. You know, I, I'm not suggesting that it's a really easy thing to do. When, when we first uh, moved into the neighborhood, we were wanting to impact. Um, I remember Zion was just a couple months old, and we had this guy with us named Rob, and Rob had been uh, a a drug addict as well, and he had been completely transformed, although he still was, I mean, he's he's this massive guy with a huge mohawk, you know, he's not at all religious looking, and and we were like, he had joined us, he's like, I want to go to this downtown east side right when we were going, and he had lived with us for a couple years where we used to live, so we were like, come with us, we'll do it together, he's like, fantastic, so we get to this uh, Needle Park, the first place we went to, which is obviously named, it's a nickname, because it's a drug um, park. And we got to this park, we thought, okay, great, we'll just, we'll just sit here for a while. So we brought a blanket, and Rob had his guitar, and we're sitting on a blanket, so it's a Mohawk 200-pound uh, guitar-playing guy, and me and a two-month-old baby, you know, completely normal in that park. And we just sat down on the park, and the, this guy wandered over, and he had one arm, actually, he was a native guy, he said, he said to me, hi, I'm Bandit. <laughs> 
kid you not, that was his name. I said, go figure. Hi, <laughs> Bandit. He's drunk. I said, I'm Danielle. This is Zion. This is Rob. He's like, cool. You know, what are you doing here? I said, well, we're, we're moving to the neighborhood. We're looking for friends. He said, cool. I bet you don't have a friend named Bandit. <laughs> I said, indeed, I do not. So he sat down. I do now, you know. And he shared with us his story and all sorts of things. He told us his big, long, I mean, a lot of grief in his life, uh, residential abuse and all that kind of stuff. And then he wandered away eventually. And Rob, I'll never forget it. Rob looks at me and he says, we're looking for friends. <laughs> I said, yeah, we are. And he looked at me and goes, that's our strategy. <laughs> He's just like fear struck, you know. I thought we were taking the town, you know. <laughs> anyway, that, we thought about it for a while, actually, for that. And then actually, that is our strategy, isn't it? We're looking for friends, friends of sinners, actually. That's what we're looking for. I want to be like Jesus. I'm looking for friends. And I think too many of us have tons of friends, but all the wrong kinds. Right? Just the other day, someone was saying, you know, I need to find a church that will feed me. And I was thinking, no, you don't. You need to find some sinners. <laughs> you need to find some real friends. Get yourself some real friends, for Pete's sake. They're way more colorful. I mean, how many people do you know in churches named Bandit with one arm? <laughs> so we need to be present. We need to make ourselves available. And that's awkward. And that's an actually that Edward Scissorhands uh, clip is, is classic because it's actually scary and awkward and weird and out of our comfort zone. But there's a presence involved, isn't there? There's there's actually, I think even this door knocking thing isn't actually horrible. I mean, the Johos are doing pretty well, aren't they? Do you guys call them that? You're like, what? <laughs> Is that a new donut? <laughs> the Jehovah's Witness. We call them Johos. All right. If there's one thing you can leave with <laughs> from this Bible reading, it's Joho, you know, no. Now you know. Okay, questions and conversation. This is a, a course called Sharing Jesus Without Fear by William Fay. And uh, some of it, you know, whatever, some of it's a little sales pitchy, but actually he brings up this idea that Jesus is constantly in his style asking questions. And this is personified in Paul. Actually, Paul's constantly, he's raising with these philosophers questions. So you believe this, and I saw this altar that believes this, and what do you believe about this, and what about this, and have you heard of Jesus, and do you know about Jesus of Nazareth, and have you heard this new thing? And they're like, no, tell us more. Have you heard about the resurrection? No, tell us more. So he's engaging in conversation, and he's engaging in dialogue. And questions in conversation is actually one of the great ways we can begin, because I meet a lot of Christians who, like, they are at work, but they're kind of undercover for Jesus for their whole life. Uh, or they even might bring up church, but they never really bring up Jesus, which is unfortunate because the world isn't really very hungry for church, I hate to tell you. They're pretty hungry for Jesus, though. So there's this, there's this sort of how do we get there with people? How do we begin to share our faith without actually seeming like a Jehovah's Witness, you know, without having some sort of Avon um, uh, thing going on? And so these questions and conversations have been helpful for me and helpful for many of my friends in creating conversations that bring up Jesus, so if you want them, I'm sure you could Google them as well. But these are the questions. Do you have any spiritual beliefs? So just bringing up the questions. Now, what William suggests when he presents this information is that when you're asking the question, you really are asking the question. You're not just asking the question to get to the next question. You're not just asking the question for your own agenda. You really want to know people. Because, again, back to our motive of heart, we really love sinners, we want to know them. We want to get to know what they believe. We want to understand what they're thinking and where they're coming from. Do you have any spiritual beliefs? And then actually engaging in that conversation for a while. 
to you who is Jesus, which is a great um, conversation starter. <laughs> you should try it at a party. It can be really fun. <laughs> but to you who is Jesus, and that actually can be quite a fascinating question. When I, I used to coach a high school basketball team, and I had assumed And I don't know where I got this assumption, but I had assumed that that generation, so they were like 14 to 16-year-old girls, and I had assumed that they actually had rejected Jesus. And what I was doing was we would go on the road a lot because it was a fairly small town, so we would always go on a Friday. We'd play our games Friday, Saturday. We'd come back Saturday night, and I would often be preaching on Sunday morning. So I would do my preach prep like every normal minister would. I would do it with my 15, 16-year-old girls on the on the bus, you know, and I would say, guys, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And we were, I was actually getting ready for an Easter preach, and I was talking about the crucifixion. I said, guys, what do you think of the crucifixion? And they're like, yeah, I don't really understand it. Why did Jesus die? Like, why did he have to die? And what was this about? Didn't somebody said that he came back from the dead? And went, I mean, the only other believer, in a sense, on the bus was a Jehovah's Witness, actually, which was hilarious for sermon prep. <laughs> it was fantastic. Um, And they really didn't understand. They didn't know. They had never really heard the full gospel story. They'd only heard sort of MTV images of, you know, uh, televangelists and rock and roll stars beating them up and things like that. So they had never actually understood. And and it wasn't until I started asking them questions that I realized that they didn't know. Do you know what I mean? I had just assumed that they'd all been to Sunday school and said, I hate this. They never, and none of them had been to Sunday school, actually. The whole generation did not know the story of Christ in completion. And we were able to do, that was one of the great joys of my life, was to be able to share that with them through the form of questions and conversations and relationship. If you died tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? Why or why not? And that's fun. (laughs) If we could only answer that. And uh, if you were wrong about your beliefs, would you want to know? You know, which is another classic. Uh, And if ever I've used these questions and somebody says, absolutely not, I wouldn't want to know, it's only for about five minutes of awkward silence, and then they say, okay, I changed my mind. (laughs) Everybody wants to know if they're wrong. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and just say, um, how did you know about Jesus? How did you come to faith? Let's just turn to the person next to you and ask them, how did you come to faith? How did you find out about Jesus? Here's one more clip for you on a a style of evangelism. What are you doing? (laughs) What is going on? Did you ever get the feeling that you were being watched? Um, yeah, sure. And then you get the feeling that maybe that thing watching you is uh, a giant elephant. Um. And you know how you get that weird feeling that your world is actually a tiny speck? And that the (laughs) elephant that I talked about earlier is carrying it around on a flower. And you realize that if you tell anybody, they think you were crazy. You know that feeling? Um, you know, I'm going to have to say no. Do you know that feeling? Ah, oh, no. <laughs> uh, a final method of evangelism that's been really fun is uh, power and encounter evangelism, which we see in um, Acts all the time, of course. The demonstration, the proclamation. 
This particular passage is Paul being able to engage with culture, and he's using the language of culture, of philosophy, to really engage with uh, culture. Interestingly enough, though, when he, when he goes to the um, Areopagus sort of place to have a chat, that's actually where they, they killed Socrates, you know, when he, he declared some new philosophies and stuff. So there actually is this really risk uh, associated uh, scenario going on with Paul. It actually just isn't. There's this sort of this friendly invite. Hey, why don't you come with us to this place where we decide the life and death of philosophers in town <laughs> and tell us more about your philosophy, you know? So there is actually this real uh, fear element, of course, in Paul's life because he, he always gets into trouble. And so there he is. And when he's defending faith, when he's explaining everything, he's really praying that God will do his work, really, in the lives and hearts of the philosophers. And uh, indeed, some of it bears some great fruit. Power encounters is this idea, you know, when we did those um, things of listening to God and hearing God's voice, uh, it's, it's really bringing God and bringing his voice and his power um, to be made manifest in the earth. So I first encountered this with a friend of mine who, who leads a group called Extreme Prophetic. And, and they basically took all these sort of prophetic types of the church, you know, wacky-dacky, charismatic, prophetic types, who could hear from God quite well, and they had sort of mastered that principle. And she decided to, to say, hey, why aren't we actually doing this for the world? Why aren't we actually listening to God for people who are hungry? And she saw literally, you know, the tarot card readings and the psychic centers and the psychic lines and all the guests on Oprah Winfrey for happiness and harmony and self, you know, realization. And she said, there's obviously a hunger. I mean, it's absolutely certain that people are spiritually hungry today. There's no question about that. And so why can't we sort of do this? So she experimented by using a boost juice. You know, this friend of hers had a, a restaurant, a juice bar. And they put up a big sign in the window one day, and it said, free spiritual readings. And, uh, and she, her and the, her friend, who, who were very gifted uh, in hearing God, just sat in the restaurant and watched as a lineup formed that went all the way around the next block. <laughs> I mean, hundreds of people were lining up going, is this where I get my free spiritual reading? Is this where I get my free spiritual reading? And they were like, yep, step right in. And one by one, what they would do is they would just sit down in this juice bar and they would sit down with the person and say, look, we're followers of Jesus. We believe he's alive and he speaks and he wants to speak to you. So we're going to pray and ask God to give us a, a picture that might help you or might speak to you. And if it helps you, praise the Lord. And if not, it was free. <laughs> <laughs> and so they would pray for these people and person after person after person after person encountered God. And, and actually, they had to close down. They couldn't keep going that day and send people home. And they gave them all church office cards. And the church office was like, what have you done? People keep calling, you know. <laughs> the nerve. <laughs> Sinners calling the church. <laughs> looking for words from God. Like, what are they thinking, you know. And, and they started to do this. And we started to do this in our neighborhood. Because actually, I was quite excited about it. I was like, isn't that an incredible thing? And, and I kind of grabbed it. And I was like, yeah, people are hungry. And people want to know. And these people had invited me to help do an evangelism seminar. So I said, oh, this is great. This is my friend. She's doing this thing. Why don't we try it? And they're like, yeah, let's try it. And none of them had ever even tried listening to God before. And, um, and that's not even my strong suit. That's sort of my friend's strong suit. So I was sort of like, nuts. I wish she was here, you know. <laughs> When I wish she was here right now because they think I know how to do this. <laughs> and so we went out to this park in Sacramento. It was in America. We went down to this park and we literally set up these two chairs in the park with a big sign that said spiritual, free spiritual readings. Get them while they're hot, you know. 
And we sat there and we waited. And I told these guys, people are spiritually hungry. They're going to come. They're going to come. And sure enough, somebody came by. What? They're free? He said, yeah, they're totally free. It's cool, isn't it? People love a bargain. They're free. They're free spiritual readings. They're like, okay, I'm going to go get my, you know, I'm getting my girlfriend. I'm going to get, and soon some people were waiting there. And now we were really scared because the girl and I doing it together, the girl was literally shaking because she'd never done evangelism, never listened to God before. You know, she was like, ah. I was like, it's okay. It's okay. And inside I was going, we're going to learn some humility today. (laughs) And we sat down. The first person came was this massive um, Spanish construction worker guy. Like an immigrant construction guy, massive guy, and he sits down. I'm like, oh, this will be easy. No fear here, you know, he just could crush me like a bug. And we're sitting there, and he goes, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. What do I do? And I said, you just sit there. We're both followers of Jesus. We're going to pray and ask God to speak to you. And if he speaks to you, great. And if not, it's free. So cheers. He said, okay, so we pray. Jesus, please. You know, we'd love to give this guy a word. We'd love to share your heart for him. Do you have anything specifically for him? And immediately I get this picture. And I, like I said, I, I don't actually do this that well myself. I try, you know, but I'm a bit of a beginner. And I get this picture of this little Spanish kid with fat little fingers. And he's a bit like a chubby little guy. And he's like trying to play the piano. And every time he plays the piano, he's, not, he's getting stuck. You know, his fat fingers can't really move properly. And so he just gets really mad, and he slams down the piano, and he walks away. And I'm thinking to myself, what are the chances that this Mexican immigrant had piano lessons, you know? I'm going, ah, I can't share that. But, you know, my friend's getting nothing. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> okay. She's like, useless. Just pray for me then, okay? <laughs> so I said... Okay, I got this picture. I don't know if it'll mean anything, but you were a little kid, and I saw you playing the piano, and then you just were like, ah, forget it, and you slammed down the piano, and you walked away, and the guy bursts into tears. You know, I'm just like, what is me with weeping people? You know, like, get it together. Jeez. I said, oh, does that mean anything then? (laughs) Or are you just crying because you can't hear God, you know, (laughs) even in a free spiritual reading? He said, I remember that day, actually. I totally remember that day. And from that day on, I've never finished anything in my life. It's all been unfinished. That's why I'm in construction, because I should have been finishing a degree, but I left school and blah, blah. And he had this big story about how he never finished anything. And I said, you know, I think Jesus is the great finisher. You know, he went all the way to the cross, even when it cost him his life, and he finished the job, sat down at the right hand of the Father. I mean, he could help you. He's like, yeah, I need his help. I need Jesus. (laughs) I'm like, absolutely, let's pray. So we prayed, he got Jesus. And then he said, are you going to be here for a little while longer? I said, absolutely. He said, I'll go get my girlfriend. So he runs and he gets his girlfriend, and then his girlfriend gets a word, his girlfriend gets saved, and his girlfriend runs and gets her parents, and then soon the church that we were at doing evangelism seminars had a whole Spanish ministry. (laughs) Absolutely, praise the Lord. And it works. You know, people are hungry to hear the Lord. Uh, And I think there needs to come a time in our lives where we really, you know, we can only eat so much (laughs) without getting super fat, right? We've really got to walk out. And this whole theme of apprentice, this whole purpose of the Acts study, the whole purpose of the gospel of the early church was to take the gospel out, was to take what you received and to freely give it out into unclean places, into new places, to be friends of sinners, to be moved for the world. Uh, And I wonder if we could pray together now that God would move in our hearts 
to move us out. Do you know there's an opportunity even this afternoon if you're hungry for this right now and you can't wait till you get home. In Minehead, they're doing some outreach at the school in Minehead. We can give you more information about that if you're interested this afternoon. Uh, there's a group out there this morning as well. So, Lyndall, perhaps you would come and you would pray with us. Be great. I knew there was something I'd forgotten. I think there's definitely something missing here. Uh, if you are interested in the, uh, the outreach in Minehead, three o'clock till five o'clock this afternoon. Uh, if you want to know more, just pop along to the Spring Harvest stand and I'm sure they can point you in the right direction. Would you stand with me? I've got two jobs for you before we finish. The first job is to ask you if you would give a huge thank you to Danielle for her teaching this week. Hasn't it been extraordinary? been a rock star, isn't it? Yep. Praise the Lord. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Danielle, for all that God has used you to say to us. We're incredibly grateful. Second thing is, do you think you could learn an 18-word prayer in the next 10 seconds? Okay, you've got a bit of a head start if you're an Anglican. Um, <laughs> okay, these are the 18 words. Send us out in the power of your spirit. To live and work. To live and work. To your praise and glory. To your praise and glory. Just refresh each other's memories, the person next to you. Just tell them, remind them. Send us Send out in the power of your spirit. To live and work. To your praise and glory. Okay, you got it. Is it fixed in your head? And are you ready to pray it over yourself and over everyone in this big top? The spirit who acts the spirit who speaks, the spirit who unites, is now the spirit who sends, okay? So, in the name of Jesus, send us, us out, out in the in power, power of, of your, your spirit, spirit to live, live and work to your, your praise, praise and glory. glory. Amen. Amen. Have a great day.